beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you've spent much time in Christian circles, you've probably heard the slogan, we are not, we are in the world, but not of the world. The point of the slogan is that as followers of Jesus Christ, we are to live in this world, but we're not to be part of it. We live in the midst of our society. It's where we do business, where we work, where we pursue further education. It's where we shop. It's in the midst of our pagan society that Christ calls us to make disciples of all nations. Yet the Bible teaches us not to be of the world. We are not to conform to the world's standards or to partake in the world's sins. Each of us faces a strong challenge not to be conformed to the world around us. The world exerts a strong influence on us. The attitudes of those around us affect us. And the people around you are all striving to get rich so that they can live comfortable lives. It's hard not to get caught up in a materialistic approach to life. If society teaches that you're in charge of your own life and that you have the right to be happy, it's easy to excuse various sins because we've bought into the mentality that life is ultimately all about me. We're living in a media-driven world. All kinds of ideas and perspectives and philosophies are presented via TV shows, YouTube, Facebook, podcasts, and the like. Some of what comes in is good, but much is not. The things we watch and read influence us. They help to shape our thinking. Societal attitudes on things like abortion and same-sex relationships have, have changed dramatically in the past 50 years. Within the church, it used to be shocking when people got divorced. Yet today, divorce is much more commonplace. What I'm saying, beloved, is that we change with the culture around us. Although we like to think that we are in the world but not of the world, the reality is, is that we conform to the world much more than we should. There is a great danger in this. For if we are conformed to this world, we give up our Christian identity. We will only remain a Reformed church by constantly reforming our hearts and our lives. If we don't, we stand in danger of falling away. This morning we continue our series on Revelation. We deal with the blowing of the fifth trumpet. It announces God's judgment on the world, especially on those who do not believe in Jesus Christ or obey his words of life. Our text talks about the unleashing of locusts. Now, these are not normal locusts, 
but scary creatures who have the sting of a scorpion in their tails. This plague of locusts will not eat green grass or plants or trees. Instead, these scary creatures are unleashed on all those who live unrepentant lives in rebellion against God. They bring torment on all those on the earth who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. I preach you the word of God under the following theme. God allows Satan to open the bottomless pit and release locusts like scorpions to torment all unrepentant people. We'll consider what these locusts like scorpions represent, how they torment unrepentant people, and how God spares those who are his. Our text deals with the blowing of the fifth trumpet. Each time a trumpet blasts, John has shown how God pours out his wrath on the earth. In our text, John saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. There is some debate about what this star that had fallen represents. It's clear that this star represents a spiritual being, a powerful angel created by God. The question is whether it represents a good angel or an evil one. The best explanation is, is that this fallen star represents Satan. Most likely our text refers directly back to Isaiah 14, which we read together. It says, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. Isaiah 14 is a prophecy against Babylon and how this mighty nation will be brought low because of the manner in which they oppressed God's people. Babylon is a symbol of Satan's power. It was Satan who wanted to make himself like the Most High God. That is why he rebelled against God's rule. Yet he would be brought down to Sheol. Isaiah 14 pictures God's judgment on Babylon and its spiritual rulers from among the demonic forces. The Bible gives further evidence of Satan falling from heaven to earth. In Luke 10, Jesus speaks of how he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What Jesus is saying is that as the 72 disciples went out preaching, healing, and casting out evil spirits, he saw Satan being defeated. In John 12, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. In John 16, 11, Jesus speaks of how the ruler of this world is judged. Anytime Revelation uses the word fallen, it's used in the sense of having fallen under the judgment of God. There are times in Revelation when good angels come down. But Satan and his evil spirits are thrown down out of heaven. And when they're thrown down, they fall. 
That's the star fallen from heaven to earth is Satan. In verse 11 of our text, he's identified as the king of the locusts who sting like scorpions and as the angel of the bottomless pit whose name is Abaddon in Hebrew and Apollyon in Greek. Translated into English, these terms Abaddon and Apollyon mean the destroyer. Our text tells us Satan was given the key to the bottomless pit. Please note that phrase, he was given. Satan is not in charge of what happens in this world. He can only do what Christ allows him to do. Revelation 1 already made it clear that Jesus has the keys of death and hell. Because he has been given permission, Satan opens the shaft of the bottomless pit. When Satan opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, smoke rose like smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened. These images of fire and darkness make it clear that nothing good will come forth from this bottomless pit. John writes, Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power, like the power of scorpions of the earth. In the ancient world, locusts were greatly feared. There are a certain type of grasshopper that have a swarming phase. There can be as many as 80 million locusts in a swarm. They've been observed traveling in columns 100 feet deep and four miles wide. Locusts are destroyers. They eat every green thing in sight. Exodus 10 tells us about the plague of locusts that the Lord brought on Egypt. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. They ate up all the plants in the land and the fruit on the trees. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field, through all the land of Egypt. Locusts destroy everything in their path. They leave behind ruin and devastation. The result for people living in a land when locusts had passed through was that they would suffer famine, for all their crops had been destroyed. As such, in the Bible, locusts came to be a symbol of God's judgment. We see this throughout the prophets. A good example would be what we read together in Joel 1. In it, the prophet Joel warned Judah of the Lord's judgment that was coming against them for their sins and their refusal to repent. He pictured God's judgment as an invasion of a swarm of locusts. It's likely that he used locusts as an illustration of the ruin and the devastation that foreign armies would bring upon God's people. In our text, John sees locusts emerging from the bottomless pit, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. Scorpions are insects that grow to be about five inches long. They look a bit like lobsters. They have the same kind of claws with pincers up front. 
They have a stinger on the end of their tails. They're easily provoked. And when a scorpion stings you, it releases some poison into you. Normally, this poison is not enough to kill you, but it's very painful. Thus, our text presents us with swarming locusts, which have tails that can sting and hurt you. This type of insect does not actually exist. Revelation uses it to present us with an image of the terrible judgment God unleashes after the fifth trumpet is blown. Verse 3 says that these locusts, like scorpions, were given power. Once again, beloved, please note that the locusts have no power or authority to do anything of their own accord. They can only do what Jesus Christ permits them to do. Verse 4 says that these locusts like scorpions were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Our text makes clear that in this judgment, God is not unleashing locusts to eat all the plants in their way, to bring starvation on the earth. Instead, God is sending them to harm only those who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. Thus, God sends forth these cruel insects to punish all those who are not his children. God's wrath is directed against the ungodly, and the unrepentant. The end of Revelation 9 makes clear who it is that come under God's terrible judgment unleashed in this plague. They are those who, do not, who did not repent of the work of their hands. They are guilty of worshipping demons and idols, of murder, sorcery, sexual immorality, and theft. This plague is directed against those who are living in rebellion against God and who refuse to repent. We seem, beloved, that it's not an actual locust with a stinging tail of a scorpion that God will send to punish unrepentant mankind. Please remember that Revelation is apocalyptic material, that it repeatedly uses symbols to represent spiritual truths. So what do these locusts like scorpions represent? Please remember, John saw Satan fallen from heaven to earth, that he was given the key to the abyss, to the bottomless pit. It's out of this hellish cavern that these creatures arise. They are agents of Satan. They're called demons or evil spirits in the Bible. In the days when the Lord Jesus was on earth, there were many people who were demon-possessed. These evil spirits inhabited various people and took control of their lives. At times, they made them deaf or mute or caused them epileptic fits or harmed them by casting them in the fire or in water. Their power and their influence was great. When a demon lived in someone, he made that person 
a captive of Satan. That's when Jesus cast evil spirits out of people. It was a great sign of his power, of his ability to set people free from bondage to the evil one. In many parts of the world today, people still live in fear of Satan and his evil spirits. Whether you go to native tribes in South America, in Papua New Guinea, or in Africa, they all live in fear of the spirits who are out to get them. In these cultures, the witch doctor is often the most powerful person in the village. By offering the prescribed sacrifices and presenting the right gifts, he or she will do various rituals to protect you from harm. Even when the gospel comes to such people, it's very hard for them to let go of their superstition and of their witchcraft. Now, in the Western world, we tend to scoff at such things. We're often oblivious of the spiritual world all around us. God tells us in Hebrews 1 that his angels are ministering spirits sent forth to serve the elect. Psalm 34 verse 7 says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. God will often protect his children from the attacks of Satan by putting a hedge of angels around them. The Bible also makes it clear that Satan and his evil spirits are at work in the world all around us. In Ephesians 6, Paul encourages us to put on the whole armor of God. You know why we need to do that? It's so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul elaborates on this spiritual battle we're involved in. He says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that is, against other people. Instead, our battle is with Satan and his evil spirits. Paul calls them rulers, authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness. He calls them the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In our text, we see that the locusts, like scorpions, represent Satan's evil forces. The fallen angels, also referred to in the Bible as demons or as evil spirits, are released from this bottomless pit. They come out onto the earth to wreak havoc and destruction. They're sent forth to torment wicked and unrepentant people. They're allowed to sting them, to bring them much pain and sorrow and despair. But they're not allowed to kill. Our text says in those days people will seek death, but they will not find it. They'll look for an escape from their torment, but there will be no running away. God will mete out his wrath on those who reject him on those who refuse to repent of their sins. This brings us to our second point, and it will consider how these locusts like scorpions torment unrepentant people. 
In the verses 7 to 10 of our text, we get a further description of these locusts like scorpions. Our text describes what they look like. Our text says they look like this and like that and like such and such. That word like is used again and again. Characteristics of these locusts like scorpions are given. Please remember, we're dealing with symbols here. The point of the description of these demons or evil spirits is to show their power and their cunning. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. In the ancient world, horses and chariots were like the tanks of a modern army. They were mobile and powerful. These horses were war horses, trained for battle, chomping at the bit to get into the thick of battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. These crowns are the victory wreaths worn by athletes and gladiators. They're symbols of how they have triumphed over all others. Their faces were like human faces. These are not senseless animals operating by instinct. They are demons that possess intellect and cunning. Their hair is like women's hair. Most likely this is a reference to their seductive ways. Their teeth are like lion's teeth. Lions have sharp teeth that they use to rend their prey. They have a powerful bite that can crush bones. These demons have their hearts set on ripping apart, on destroying their prey. These locusts, like scorpions, had breastplates like breastplates of iron. A breastplate is designed to protect the vital organs that lie beneath it. These demons are invincible against human attack. When they fly, the sound is like that of horses and chariots rushing into battle. In modern terms, you could think of the drone of helicopters rushing into battle, striking fear into the hearts of those about to come under attack. The description of these demons ends by noting that they have tails, and stings like scorpions, that they have power to hurt people for five months. It's important to pay attention to the five-month period during which the locusts like scorpions will torment ungodly and unrepentant people. The lifespan of a typical locust is about five months. Thus, during their entire lifespan, these swarms of locusts will torment their victims. It raises the question, when will this attack of evil spirits take place? We know that it is by his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead that Jesus Christ won the victory over Satan. At that point in time, Jesus ascended into heaven. He took his rightful place on the heavenly throne. There was no longer any room in heaven for Satan, and he was cast out. In John's vision, he sees what will happen in the last days. 
He's given a perspective on the things that will take place between the time of Christ's ascension and the time of his return. It is now, during this final age, that the spiritual hosts of wickedness have been released from the bottomless pit to wreak havoc on the earth. Please remember that they are created beings. They're not divine. They're not all-powerful. They come forth in swarms. There are times when there's not much evidence of their destructive fury. There's also times when they harass and torment people so much that they seek death as an escape. God lets these demonic forces loose on ungodly, rebellious, and unrepentant people. Think about that for a moment, beloved. Who would you expect Satan to wield his power against? You would say against his enemies, against God's people. But God has not given him permission to do so. He's only permitted to harm those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. He's only allowed to sting his own followers and to torment them. There is a widespread view among non-Christians that hell is a place where they will be united with their unbelieving friends to lounge about, to drink beer, to boast about their sinful exploits while living on this earth. Satan has blinded his followers to the reality of his destructive fury against them. In John 8, Jesus describes Satan as a deceiver and a murderer. Satan is not a friend to his followers. He's not on their side. He does not want the best for them. He hates and he torments all under his power. He oppresses them so harshly that they want to die. Sometimes we can be influenced by the culture of our day to think it's cool and clever and fun to party and to drink and to do drugs. Even if there were no eternal consequences to living that kind of life, it's a stupid pathway to follow. Go to an AA meeting and talk to a 50-year-old who's been in and out of detox for years. He's not going to tell you that his life has been really cool. Instead, he'll tell you a story of broken relationships and estranged children. He'll tell you that those who continue in that kind of lifestyle end up in jail or end up dead. Satan gets many people with the vain philosophies of the day. He takes whole societies and cultures captive by promoting an ungodly way of life. Think of how the German people were taken captive by National Socialism. 
Consider the brutality the Nazis unleashed against many of their own people. How they murdered some six million Jews in the Holocaust. How their ideas contributed to World War II. Think about the spread of communism in places like Russia and China. A philosophy by which there was no personal ownership of property and how everything was to be shared by all. Ultimately, the state was in control. And those in power ruled for their own benefit, and they harshly oppressed everyone else. Millions have been murdered under the totalitarian rule of communism in Russia and China. Think about the philosophy of materialism so rampant in our culture. Life for many is all about making money, about getting rich, about living comfortable lives. People's whole reason for being is living life for themselves. Millions have been enslaved and they're running on the treadmill trying to get ahead in life. There's no room for God in their lives. It's all about me, about my life, about my pleasure and my enjoyment. And think, beloved, about what happens when the end of such people's lives approaches. Have you ever been in the hospital when unbelievers lose a loved one? Have you ever heard their inconsolable wailing? If life is all about here and now, what happens when your time runs out? Today we see Satan and his demons taking people captive through the sexual revolution that has transformed our society over the past half century. Satan's promoted this idea of free love. With the coming of the birth control pill, people could have sex without having to worry about having babies. Many have forsaken marriage. Instead, they shack up with whomever they want, whenever they want. God has given many in our society over to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity and dishonorable passions, as Paul warned about in Romans 1. People's thinking has gotten all messed up. So they pursue same-sex relationships so that some even begin to doubt their sexual orientation. Do you know what happens when people are taken captive by Satan and by his vain philosophies? They get drawn further and further into their sin. Satan and his demons drive them further and further away from the Lord. Satan's a liar and a deceiver. Satan reminds people of the past. And he always twists things to cause further breakdown in relationships. He does whatever he can to create anger, bitterness, and desire for revenge in people's hearts. When people look to the future, Satan paints a dark picture to make people despair. Satan is not a friend to those who follow him. He stings them with poisonous bites to torment them. 
He fills people's hearts with doubt and fear and hopelessness and crushing guilt, so much so that they despair even of life itself. There is much evidence of Satan and his demons' work in our society. Just look at the high levels of severe depression and suicide in our society. Materially, we, as the Western world, have never had it better. Our standard of living, the health care available to us, the freedoms we enjoy have few parallels in human history. And yet we live in a culture where there's so much anxiety, depression, mental illness, and hopelessness. Besides people taking their own lives, we now have doctor-assisted suicide. We're living in a culture of despair, a culture of death. Through the locust plague, God is punishing ungodly and unrepentant people. God allows the demonic hosts to wreak havoc in the lives of all who do not want to submit to him. He gives unbelievers a foretaste of what it will be like to suffer the ravages of hell. This brings us to our final point, how God spares those who are his. When speaking about the torments that God allows Satan to unleash on the ungodly and the unrepentant, it seems like some of these punishments are not reserved for those who are not Christians. Satan can trap Christians into believing in the vain philosophies of the culture around us. He can enslave Christians through addictions to alcohol, drugs, gambling, or pornography. He can work anger, bitterness, and despair into the hearts of God's people. There are times when our hearts may be filled with doubt and fear and guilt. There are godly people who struggle with anxiety, depression, despair, and hopelessness. As pastor, I've been involved in leading funeral services for godly but struggling church members who committed suicide. And so the question arises, is there any difference between the manner in which Satan works against Christians and how he works against the ungodly and the unrepentant? Are not all people subject to his attacks? The Bible makes it clear that Satan and his demons can tempt believers They can try to lead God's people astray. Paul warns us that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, that he's a cunning and deceitful enemy. That's why Peter writes, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour her. Peter calls us to resist him, firm in our faith. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. We, beloved, are involved 
in a spiritual battle against the devil of this world and our own sinful flesh. Yet one of the calls that resounds throughout Revelation is the call to overcome. You see, beloved, if you truly believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then he has claimed you as his own. He has marked you with the seal of God on your forehead. You belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus is your master and Lord. Satan has no authority over your life. He may poke his nose in places where it doesn't belong. He will lie to you and accuse you. But because God has not given him any authority over your life, you will not be afflicted with the woe of this fifth trumpet. That's reserved for those who live ungodly lives and who refuse to repent. It's reserved for those who reject God, who do not follow his ways. Thus, our text contains both a strong warning and a great comfort. The warning is that we should not be conformed to the ways of this world, nor partake in its sins. As Christians, we may fall into sins. At times, we may commit serious sins which grieve God greatly. But we should not harden ourselves in our sins and persist in them. For if we do, God will give us over to our sins and to all the consequences of our sins. If we reject God and his grace, he will withdraw his spirit from us and he will hand us over to the dominion of Satan. Our text also holds out a great comfort for all God's beloved people. Christ has bought us with his blood. He has made us his own. He has put his mark on our foreheads as a sign that we belong to him. God prevents Satan from attacking us in the manner he attacks his followers. Jesus will not allow us to perish. Satan does not have the ability to snatch us from our Father's hand. Our comfort is that God will preserve his own people so that despite the troubles and sorrows of this life, we may look forward to a future of joy and glory with him. Amen.